Merry Christmas, one and all. Welcome to the Word here on Christmas Day. Watcher and welcome. How are you all doing? How's your Christmas Day going? Just hope you've managed to have some kind of semblance of normality in what has been a very strange year for us all. So let's put that aside for now. As today we are joined by some very special guests sharing their lives, stories and inspirations. And what a selection of guests we have. In January 2021, The Sounds of Blackness will be celebrating 50 years as one of the world's leading gospel choirs. But not just a choir, although they consist of some of the best musicians, performers and singers, at the very heart of all they do is to battle and fight social injustice and racism with hit singles like Optimistic from 30 years ago and this year Black Lives Matter, another single Royalty and Sick and Tired, all with a message but delivered with such joy and wonder that they have become globally recognised, not just by their fans, but by industry leaders, having worked with the likes of Stevie Wonder, Duke Ellington, Prince, just to name but a few. So we are delighted to share Christmas Day with the founder and musical director of The Sounds of Blackness, Gary Dennis Hines. We also hear about their incredible virtual Christmas concert now available on Broadway On Demand worldwide. Also giving up some of their Christmas Day to celebrate with us, I'm excited to welcome back everyone's favourite Bristolian filmmaker and director, Paul Holbrook. And joining us for the very first time is actress and writer Laura Bainston. They share some really, really cool, fascinating insights into acting and filmmaking and the industries. And we'll hear about their latest production, Hollow. This year, I've been blown away by young people, young people in general, young people that stood up to the injustices of the brutal murder of George Floyd here in Bristol. The incredible group of All Black Lives Matter Bristol, Zara, Liza, Tiffany, Clayton and Sam. And our young environmentalist too. And my first guest today is someone I have wanted to interview since she was 13 years old. She now dedicates her life to battling against environmental and social injustices. We meet Maya Rose Craig, a.k.a. Bird Girl. But first, let's get festive and hear a classic track by The Sound of Blackness. This is their single, Royalty. You're in tune to the word here on Christmas Day. One with two strikes of tension, trapped in poverty, generations of injustice and inequality. Ancestors changed the world, and though they came in chains, and you the strength and hope. Oh, 
Welcome back. You are listening to The Word here on Christmas Day. Now, my first guest on the show today is someone I've been trying to interview for the last five to six years. But sadly, but understandably, her schoolwork was her priority. She's just been given an honorary doctorate. You may recognise a photo of her that went viral when she's sitting alone on an ice cap in the middle of the Antarctic, holding a sign saying, you strike for climate. She has seen half of the world's bird population. She has set up a charity called Black to Nature. She dedicates herself to battling against social injustice and environmental injustices. And that was all after school. <laughs> but now she's 18 and on a gap year. I am delighted to welcome to the word Maya Rose Craig, a.k.a. Bird Girl. Hi, I'm Maya Rose Craig. I blog under the name of Bird Girl. And I am an 18-year-old environmental and diversity activist from Bristol. And you're a lot more than that as well. I've wanted to speak to you for such a long time. I I didn't even know your real name until recently. I've just known you as Bird Girl. And, <laughs> and so many people have known you. But you're also a doctor now as well. What are you a doctor in exactly? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely bonkers. I got an honorary doctorate from the University of Bristol back in February a doctorate of science which was yeah really crazy to me because they just sort of sent me an email out of the blue saying we love your work that you've done especially your grassroots project locally all to do with you know getting BAME kids out into the countryside and they wanted to give it to me and obviously I said yes and yeah I, I think in some ways it hasn't quite sat in that I really got that like it all feels like a mad dream almost well, it is so cool. It is really cool. And, you know, just to sort of highlight, you are only 18 years old at the moment, you know, but what you've achieved from such a young girl till now, 
Is it right that you're the youngest person to have seen over half the world's species of birds? That is true, yeah. Um, it, that was another crazy thing. Um, <laughs> it, hap it happened last summer and I've, it's something I've been working towards for like literally years and years and years. And when it finally happened, it was just like, oh my God, I have seen half of all of the birds that are on this planet. Like it's, yeah, really crazy to me. And let's just start at the beginning. How does a young girl get into bird watching and become so avid about it? <laughs> um, I mean, good question. Yeah, I mean, both my parents are bird watchers and my older sister was a birder when I was born. And so I think it was never really a thing that I got into at a certain point like that because they sure. literally started taking me out since I was a baby. And it's always been a really, really major part of my life. I've always loved birds. I'm very lucky. I live in a really rural place. So that nature and wildlife and birds are all around me all the time. So then in that case, how come it came so important to you to make these opportunities available for kids in the cities to be able to enjoy the countryside in the way you have? How did that kind of come about? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing for me is I am, I'm half Bangladeshi and my mum's Bangladeshi. And, you know, because nature had been such a major part of my life, I found it really sad, basically, that other kids weren't getting those opportunities. And I think as I grew up, I started to notice more and more I just wasn't seeing people from our communities out in the countryside, out in nature, out enjoying, you know, our wildlife. Um, and I really wanted to do something about it. So I started running these nature camps for minority ethnic kids out in the down in Somerset. And um, I've been doing that since I was 13. I've been doing that for about five years now. Um, and I love doing them. They're fantastic. The kids always have an amazing time. That's when you first came to my attention was when you started doing these camps. And you can see, I've seen some videos of the kids really having a great time. And that's a little bit about what Ujima is about, relaunching the Black and Green projects because of the, in reaction really to the environmental platform being so sort of middle class and white. You mentioned something about sustainable issues and matters of racism as well, basically, and how they're interlinked. I've heard you speak about that before. How do you see them interlinking? I mean, I think that sustainability and equality are absolutely interlinked in every way you can think of, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I feel like my project is so important because we are giving that equality of opportunity, I suppose, to the kids that we work with and the communities that we work with. And I really think that people have no reason to get involved in the environmental movement, no reason to care about environmental issues if they've never really experienced wildlife or the outdoors or nature in that way. Um, and I think that we shouldn't expect people to care when they have no reason to. And, I, and so I think that as well as giving being important for giving those opportunities for the kids that we work with, I also really think that my organisation, Black to Nature, is really important in terms of making sure that the environmental movement is sustainable and can continue to move forward. But I also have to have a lot of conversations with people about something that we call global climate justice, which is basically talking about how different parts of the world are being affected in a really unfair way by environmental issues, especially climate change. And again, I suppose this sort of conversation came to my attention because of my family in Bangladesh and because of the whole narrative around climate change and environmental issues in the global south but essentially we're dealing with the fact that a lot of these countries have had very very little to do with climate change to do with causing environmental issues and they're the ones who are at the moment dealing with the brunt of the issues like there are four million 
climate change refugees in the in the capital city Dhaka at the moment and you know if we're using Bangladesh as an example they're dealing with like floods and drought and crop failure and things like that meanwhile the people who are experiencing these things they haven't done anything wrong and so I think going forward it's so so important that the west starts to pick up its own responsibility essentially for the crisis that it's caused and that's what very much your work does is highlighting issues in the global south that you're right that we've caused in the western world which is so horrific there's a photograph of you and i've got to ask you about it because it it's when i first saw it it just it's so powerful you're sat on a ice cap it looks like i don't know where it is holding up a sign youth strike for climate where are you first of all where is that photograph taken That was taken back in September when I was really, really lucky. But basically I got to go on a Greenpeace ship up to the Arctic um, in September when they were doing all this scientific research to do with pollution and the sea ice minimum, like how much the Arctic shrinking and stuff like that. And I sort of realised that this trip was coinciding with this massive global day of action that Greta Thunberg had arranged in September. And I just, I don't know, like, I just thought, like you said, that image felt so powerful to me. And I really wanted to do something that as a young person really conveyed all of my anger and frustration and upset about environmental issues and climate change. Um, And it spread in a way that I never, never expected. Yeah, no, it's phenomenal. It's so powerful because of its simplicity. And, you know, a young girl on her own out there sitting on an ice cap with just the sign it just, it really hits home. It's, um, yeah, and, and I think it's so important that that young people can relate to you as well. And what is so empowering and refreshing is to see how young people are being so engaged by issues of sustainability and diversity and race and equality. We've seen in Bristol the Black Lives Matter movement that organised the first a demonstration in June and it was a group of very young people some of them still at school and you know if it wasn't for them we would not have had the global press even looking and starting the conversations that you young people now are causing and I think you know it seems so unfair that the older generation have caused these issues but yet you're holding up the banner and addressing these what for you is the most important thing at the moment that you you feel that people need to understand or do to make a change? I think I might answer that in two parts just because I think there is a difference. And I think for me, my biggest frustration as an environmental activist is definitely the lack of systemic change that we are seeing. Yeah. Um, because that's what we need. I, I think there's been far too much of a focus on individual action in a way that's A, like super unfair for the people that are putting all of this pressure on themselves to be perfect environmentalists, but also really... I suppose brushes away the fact that we do have a much larger systemic issue where companies and corporations are causing a a very small number of them are causing over 70% of climate change and so going forward I really need want to see that change I want to see them these corporations I mean I suppose losing that influence that has held them in power for so long and I feel like there needs to come a day where we start to see the people in power prioritizing the people that they're supposed to represent the communities that they're supposed to represent over money and the economy and the corporations um, who are funding them so yeah personally that's what I desperately want to see I think in terms of the action that people can take of course doing your best is always the most important thing and I think in terms of our minority ethnic communities even people that don't think of themselves as like environmentalists or whatever are still doing really good things for the environment whether it's like 
like my nanu for example is really into her garden and loves gardening and always eats all the vegetables from her garden and I have lots of aunties that always hoard all of the plastic bags and never throw anything away you know like we're still it's all of those little things they do matter and it doesn't matter whether or not you actually do them under the label of environmentalism really interesting to hear some of the similarities with Julian Guyman who spoke at the black and green launch who also has the same way of thinking that you know sustainability and diversity and, and issues of racism are so interlinked so sort of moving on speaking of Julian as somebody who I you know really respect are there sort of any people out there whether that's in the sustainability or or in in wildlife that you really respect and have sort of been role models yeah I mean there's loads of different people but I, th- I think like especially over like I've been massively supported by loads of different people over the years and I think that there's a really fa- fantastic community but I think in terms of main inspiration but I do think it is all of the young people all of the young activists who are putting themselves out there to try and create change to try and make the world that they're going to inherit a better place um, and I've been doing a really nice project the last few months where I've been interviewing 30 different young environmental activists from around the world and it's just been so inspiring so exciting to hear all of their different stories and inspirations and actions and I, I think personally I take inspiration from that every day. More from Maya aka Birdgirl after this music interlude. You are listening to The Word here on Christmas Day. What a lonely, a lonely place to be born. What a lonely place to be born. Like a stranger, not far from danger. He was born in a manger, my love. to the word welcome back time to continue our conversation with Maya Rose Berggirl. So environmentalism individualism is a term people don't often come across what does that mean? <laughs> it's yeah it's something that I've been banging on quite a lot about lately just because I think it's so important and I think for me at least environmental individualism is this whole narrative to do with telling people that everything they do they have to do the best thing possible for the environment so it leads to people getting very burnt out and very guilty because I don't know they weren't able to buy vegetables that are local and organic or they weren't able to cycle to the work that day and in my opinion puts far far too much focus on the individual and I was doing some um, research lately and I found it really interesting that decades ago now I think maybe in the 70s just when climate change was starting to have some research done about it and people started to realize it was an issue a think tank that was funded by a um, fossil fuel company came up with the concept of carbon footprints 
um, which obviously is massively popularised. People still talk about it all the time in terms of judging and calculating their own damage to the planet. Um, and the fact that it is a concept thought up by people that are trying to, I suppose, avoid their own culpability, I think yeah. says a lot to me. And so I think going forward that we really, instead of obsessing about our own single actions, although we do have to do as the best job that we can, I think that the main thing that we can do to try and make this planet a better place is to, you know, really join our voices together to really empower one another and essentially to bring down these very, very large companies that we, we we need to evolve and we need to move on. And I feel like I'm sounding very cynical here, but that's genuinely how I feel about things these days. And that's what's so great about hearing young people speak, because you just say it as it is to you. You know, there's no messing around. And, and I think what's wonderful is hearing how you say people mustn't feel guilty about it, because that's so often what happens, whether that's in diversity or sustainability or any kind of issues or social justice, where people feel guilty that they're not doing enough. And actually, it's not the single people that are causing the damage. As you say, it's the corporation. So I find that fascinating. What would you say to a, a young person who wants to contribute to the environmental movement how would they start to do that if somebody was listening today what would you recommend they do I mean I think the biggest thing is to just do like I think it's so easy to get caught up in the how or the what of it all or feel like you don't quite have the knowledge that you need to start taking action but the biggest thing is to take action and you'll learn along the way which is why I think actually one of the reasons I actually think that the Fridays for Future movements have been so successful amongst young people because a lot of them, you know, had learned about climate change, wanted to do something. And this essentially was a copy and paste blueprint where they could start up something in their own city without having to come up with it from scratch, which is what, one of the reasons I think it spread so quickly, which I think says a lot because there was already that desire to, I suppose, you know, use their voices. And yeah, so I, th I think that's my main advice. But I'd also say that thinking about things critically and thinking about things for yourself rather than accepting things is always super super key as an environmentalist especially I think as a personally in my experience as an environmentalist who's also fighting for equality because there are still today a lot of narratives that are rooted in you know things like imperialism or I don't know white supremacy or like very age-old ideas that we're still sort of seeing floating around and I think I've started having to break down some of those for myself and really think critically about the narratives that I was spreading so yeah but honestly the biggest thing is just to go out and do and but be the change that you want to see because quite often as well when you start something there's 10 other people who also wanted to start and you'll very quickly see a group seeing a movement form around you. And that's exactly what's happened, isn't it, with the, the youth strike for climate and just, yes, yeah, so many groups that have come up, whether it's Extinction Rebellion or, you know, Greta Thunberg and her followers and and also what you're doing with Black to Nature as well. Now, there, you know, it is embedded in anti-racism and environmental work and hearing you speak and understand that is incredibly powerful. What have you got planned for 2021 with Black to Nature? Oh, all sorts of things. I mean, obviously this year was a disappointment because we weren't able to run any camps and we'd gotten some funding. We had four planned in the summer. It was all really exciting. So we're going to be doing lots and lots of camp next summer, especially because I am, um, I've left school last summer. So I have Yay. time. 
yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think also going forward, it would be really nice if we had the resources to be able to spread it because it's very centered around Bristol at the moment, which I really like actually. I really like it being like a Bristol based organization. But I'd love to be able to spread and engage with kids from like Manchester or Liverpool, Birmingham or London. And I think that that would be the most exciting thing that I could see for Black to Nature going forward. I couldn't agree more because you've got this blueprint now. This is how we feel about the Black and Green project. Why keep it here? Why not? You know, it could go global. It could go, you know, from city to city. I think you'll find that there will be an appetite for it. That's for sure. So it sounds like you've got a busy year ahead of you. You, you mentioned there that you finished school and you sounded quite excited about it. What What are your plans now that you finish school? Will there be university or have you got too much work to do? <laughs> yeah, I'm on a gap year at the moment, but I am actually going to uni next autumn. But I'm I'm very excited. I love learning and I love going to school and growing and stuff. And I'm hoping that Black to Nature is going to be able to solidly stand on its own two feet by the time that I go off, which again would be, you know, one of the most exciting things that could happen. Absolutely. What a great legacy. That'd be fantastic. So just to touch, you know, your birds are kind of like the, the, the kind of founding for everything that you've done. Bird populations have been on the decrease massively, mm-hmm. as with so many animals, we are seeing mass extinction at the moment. What's it like? I know very little about birds and, and how they're being affected. Are they also experiencing mass extinction at the moment? All of our wildlife populations are really struggling. But birds are another one of those. Um, And it's, you know, a really broad pattern. But I think on a broader note, what people, I think a lot of people in the UK don't really realise is just how um, depleted our biodiversity is here, even in places that we consider really, really rural, and how much our nature and our wildlife is struggling, to the point where I think that any single negative action against our biodiversity and against our wildlife has really resounding negative impact in a way that it wouldn't in other countries, which is why projects like HS2 been such a big deal for example and so I think that we're again we're really going to have to make some key decisions in the UK about what our priorities are like the politicization of environmental issues is so weird and so counterintuitive because it's basically ended up that like environmental issue pro-environment is left and not pro-environment is right and so I feel like we're seeing things like the conservatives not taking positive action for the environment just because that's sort of how the cards have fallen if that makes sense even though I think like basically I suppose what I'm trying to say is people always frame it as an environment versus economy argument and how we're gonna have to just acknowledge the fact that we'll have less money or whatever um, if we put the environment first and people aren't talking about the fact that saving the environment putting ourselves out there to save our nature could have such a resounding positive impact for the UK as a whole I just absolutely feel like going forward if there's this sort of continuous denial of that from politicians it's very purposeful and it's very disingenuous especially when we do have things like a struggling job market at the moment so yeah sorry tangent but I I I feel like what I really want to see from leaders in terms of internal politics is acknowledging that saving the environment is good for the economy 
and them then doing it. And I can see a whole future for you in politics, just listening to you speak. We need <laughs> young people like you, Maya, we really do. Do you think that people just don't care enough? You know, OK, we, we, we're pretty sure that the politicians don't. Do you think that people just don't care enough about the environment? No, you know what? I don't. I, I, I personally think it's a bit more complicated than that in that I feel like environmental issues are very, very complex, like very, very complicated in terms of like the social, political, economic side of it all. And there's no single clear positive action in a way that there are for other issues and so I genuinely think that people aren't really sure what direction to go in that combined I suppose with this idea of individualism which is so strongly being pushed I feel like a lot of people sort of just find the environmental movement very unappealing and very confusing and also I think a lot of minority ethnic communities just aren't seeing themselves reflected in the environmental movement and have like and I don't blame them have no inclination to try and join and so I think going forward it's changing that whole whole narrative and changing the way that people see pro-environment action um that's going to be super key yeah and that's why organizations like Black to Nature the Black and Green project are so fundamental at this time you know I I know that 30 years ago I was banging on about global warming and people used to think I was bonkers, literally. <laughs> no, they really did. You know, we were sort of, I remember voting for the Green Party in the European elections when I was 18, the first chance I got to vote. And again, people thought I was bonkers and they thought it was all crazy conspiracy theories. Do you think if we had been taken a little bit more seriously 30 years ago, how different do you think the environment would be now? I know. I think, again, this is one of the most frustrating things to me as a young person, because I'm so hyper aware of the fact there was the potential for this to not even be an issue now that like this literally could have been solved decades ago. And, you know, things like climate change could be, you know, I suppose, tales of the past and they're just not. And I think that's one of the things that makes me angriest. And I suppose I don't want to see that roll on for another generation where they think you could have solved this half a century ago why didn't you but yeah no I totally agree with you so next year you're gonna be um hopefully touch with getting back to your camps and doing that most of all what other plans have you got coming up for 2021 <laughs> work stuff lots of campaigning stuff and I suppose that post-covid recovery period that everyone's going to be coping with next year that was the incredible doctor I know, right? 18, and she's an honorary doctor already. That was the incredible Dr. Maya Rose Craig, a.k.a. Bird Girl. You can follow her online, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come, we will be in conversation with the Sounds of Blackness in our three-part interview later. It's Christmas Day. And to help us celebrate, I am excited to welcome back everyone's favourite Bristolian filmmaker and director, Paul Holbrook. And joining us for the first time is actress and writer Laura Baston. They share some fascinating insights into the actor and filmmaking industries and we hear about their latest production hollow <laughs> right, is that telly too loud in the front room are you all right it's fine sure yeah oh it didn't go bang i've got a cracker do you want me to get a cracker got it there's one oh you've got your cracker i won did you get one paul yes i there we go one with laura <laughs> Right, okay, listen. Randy, I, they, I didn't even know pop. They, they're, they're quite disappointing crackers. Oh, well, they were about 50p. 
So, so, the magic yeah. of radio is really some sort of sound effect, there. <laughs> I know, right? Absolutely. You're, you're right there. Okay, listen, who's going to tell their joke first? Let's I've, got, I've got a well good joke. It's Go not, on, well, I don't know if it's a joke, but last night, my husband, he genuinely fell asleep, right? He'd had a few. And he genuinely <laughs> fell asleep in, um, in a bowl of assorted chocolates. And anyway, this morning, I, um, I had to wake him up and I was like, Mark, come on. Wake up and smell the roses. <laughs> and that was in your cracker, a joke about your husband. That's great, isn't I it? I read it on Twitter. I read it on Twitter earlier. I was like, I, I like that one. That's a good one. I Obviously, got an amazing little polish. mini cello tape in my cracker. Love it. Oh, that's not useful. Just what I, like I always it. wanted. Yeah. What's your, what's your joke then, Paul? Uh, my joke is, did you hear about the bloke who jumped down the drain? No. Um, he committed suicide. Uh, <laughs> that's terrible. So what have I got here? Yeah, very good. <laughs> so what what does Miley Cyrus have at Christmas? Now go on. Twerky. Oh, sorry. We had the dog sound effects then of her clapping her ears. I love it. Like that, didn't you? Yeah, she like. Oh look, listen. Look at the time. Oh my goodness. That hello. We have just been joined by all the YouTube listeners. Merry Christmas, everybody. Welcome oh, to the Merry Christmas. Sorry, we forgot that we were live on the radio then, and it's actually Christmas Day. Wow. <laughs> we may be, I've got a couple of special guests who have spared their time from their amazing Christmas days. We have welcoming back member of the coolest for two years running for Bristol, and of course, filmmaker Paul Holbrook. Welcome to the word, Paul. How are you? Merry Christmas. Hello, Miranda, mate. I'm great. Merry Christmas to you and to all. To one and all, a Merry to Christmas. And, <laughs> and joining us for the first time on The Word is actor and writer Laura Baston. Welcome, Laura. How are you? Oh, thanks. I'm all right, Miranda. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. good. I'm loving your energy. You've got such good energy. <laughs> People say that when I do the breakfast show and they're like, how do you do it? And I, well, I can't reveal. I can't reveal Alcohol. how I do it. Yeah, no, just don't go to bed. Anyway, listen, I hope you're having a good Christmas day. Any nice presents you want to tell us about? Nah, because my mum can't, she she can't be here now. So, because she's in a tier four, she's the only she's the only one that ever buys me presents. So. Oh, sweetheart. It's I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Paul, you've got yeah. a big family though, haven't you? Are they all around today? They're all around, yeah. We're, um, the kids are opening their presents. I'm going to get to mine after dinner, I think. But, uh. There's a square box down there that looks like it could be a new pair of trainers. So, uh, oh, nice. Well, my, my son's over the moon because he wanted an Xbox X, which you can't get for love nor money. So I managed to bump someone off and get theirs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah my so boy wanted a PS5 and he's not been so lucky. No, no, no. Well, for love nor money, you can't get either. But there you go. Thanks for sparing the time with us today. How do you two know each other? Um... <laughs> Drew that dead Room. silence. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Do we so really hard. know each it's other? It's so hard on Zoom, isn't it, though? Because you get that little delay and it's horrible. I cannot wait to get people back in the studio. But yeah, go on. I'll let, I'll let Paul answer. Paul can answer. <laughs> I bet, well, I'm a filmmaker. Laura's an actress. So that's kind of uh, how our relationship started. But I think I cast Laura in a film about oh, what, seven years ago, Laura, do you reckon? First one. Yeah, maybe about six years. I think it's about six, six, six years ago. A girl and her gun. Yeah, she auditioned, got it, and then it was it was a supporting role in that one. Hmm. She was great. We got friendly. We had loads in common. Been mates ever since. And now um, I can't help but cast her in things. So she's been in the, the last the last two of my uh, 
film. <laughs> She's been the lead actress now. And Laura, what's it like working with Paul? Pretend he can't hear. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what, it ain't happening again. Till, till, no, I'm joking. He's lovely. It's it's an absolute pleasure and a joy. And I, I just thank my lucky stars that they aligned at some point to allow that to, to happen. I know Paul firstly as a director, you know, and he's just an incredible director and also an incredible writer. And his words speak to me. And that's why maybe it works so well. I don't know. <laughs> But he's also a really nice bloke and he's quite funny and he's very dry with his sense of humour. Sometimes you don't really know what's going on in there. But I quite <laughs> like that. quite like that. I tell you what, when he really came to highlight with me was when he was working with Magsy doing some of those yeah. Amazon Prime videos because I just thought that's a bloke that I could get on with. Do you know what I mean? I just yeah. thought, yeah, really down to earth, true Bristolian. And I, and I can't help loving and being proud of Bristol. And I know you're not actually from Bristol, Laura, but, you know, I know that you love the city. We all love the city. Paul, what is it that you really love and are proud about Bristol? In general, I think it's just the freedom to never be judged. It just, it's such an open place. It's full of creativity and it's, it's diverse. It feels like a safe place to live. It's colourful. It's the people in it. Like it's it's full of it's just full of such colourful, crazy, down to earth, sort of the earth people, or at least in big parts. And it's just that you just feel you know it's, it's it's home anyway. I was born and bred in Bristol. I've never lived anywhere else, and I never would want to live anywhere else. So I was obviously just very lucky to be born here. You know, so many people do move away. They get that big opportunity to go to Hollywood or go to. For me, it would be have to go to London to really get the next step in my career. Would yeah. you do that? Would you do it if it was a case of having to get? you know, the work, would you move? You know, if I did, it would be kicking and screaming. I, yeah, I, I yeah. wouldn't want to. And I, I'd like the industry to change to a point where that wasn't a necessity, to be honest. And that's what we're trying to do slowly but surely with the stuff we make, do you know what I mean? Yeah, why would you want to live? I mean, people are, people are moving from London now to Bristol because there's so much more going on, do you know what I mean? They call it Little London. So, yeah, I'm just very lucky. People live in Cornwall or Plymouth. If they're in my line of work and they want to get into it, it must be really difficult because not much goes on. But there's plenty enough in Bristol to keep you here, I think and to yeah. fight its corner a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Like, why? I don't know. Like, I'm not desperate to leave, so I'm happy to stay here fighting Bristol's corner for as long as it takes. Do you know what I mean? But I think that you are, though. You feel like a real people's champion fighting the corner for Bristol. You know, even little things like we were talking last time about the Bristolian accent and how, yeah. and I tell you what, what really stuck with me was when you said how you heard Joe on Broadchurch and you thought it was a fake accent. That, mm. I mean, that's madness, isn't it? And it's not even just the accent. It's just, it's, it's another reason I always cast Laura because it's just that sense of authenticity doesn't just come in the writing. It doesn't just come in the way you do things. It just comes in the people. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it comes through the people you use, the attachment to those people that you have creatively and on a personal level. And it's all that kind of stuff I don't want to shy away from. So I think that just helps with authenticity. And that's another reason I always, you know, whenever I'm writing a female character with these deep, intense themes that I want to explore. I just, my mind lands on Laura because I know she can deal with it. And I know, I know she can, she can bring that personable, personal approach that goes beyond acting, do you know what I mean? So yeah, she's an East London girl, she's not from Bristol, but she's from a similar council estate and mm. she, she gets it. And, that, and that's the key thing. She doesn't want to hide from it. I don't want to hide from it. And that injects itself into the films I make. I think. Yeah, Laura, yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself, because obviously we, we now know you're from London. You live in the Southwest. What brought you down this part of the world and how did you get into acting and why? And Oh, God, yeah. Where do, where do I start? So um, so I was born and bred in Dagenham. Um, in fact, I'm the only person in my family that wasn't born in London Hospital. So I get the the, the 
the salted taken out of me quite a lot because I was born in Barking, um, which at the time was part of the Essex County, but it's now classed as East London. And it always was really because um, Essex is another world to me. I don't really understand it. I don't really know it. It's, it's a huge, huge county. And there are so, so, so hundreds of towns um, within the county of Essex. Um, so I'm more in, inclined to, to know Dagenham, Barking, Ilford, East London. That was my stomping ground until I was about sort of in my early 20s. And then I moved to Cheltenham permanently because I married a Cheltonian who talks very posh. Um, yeah. Um, but, but, you know... Does he? he does he actually He does. He really does. <laughs> he might talk really posh, but he's got a really down-to-earth, gentle, normal... You know, I couldn't be with someone that was posh. It's just the way he talks. The thing with what I love about Bristol is that it's, to me, I, I can understand the community. And although I've never lived in Bristol, I spent enough time in Bristol and I spent enough time around people from those particular areas, you know, like where Paul's from, to understand that at the heart of it is community and family and morals and all of those things I can absolutely relate to because Dagenham was very similar. Um, and we got tarred with a with a rotten brush coming from Dagenham, and I did, especially living in Cheltenham, because it is quite, you know, it is a little bit, I don't know, la-di-da, I guess, and people do have a certain attitude in Cheltenham that I don't necessarily agree with, but it's just where I live. Well, we get tarred with brushes if you're from St Paul's, you know, which is where I mainly grew up and worked, and, and Paul from Hartcliffe, and, but what I love about these communities is the, the community atmosphere especially going back 20 30 years ago you know when everybody knew everybody I was so safe walking around St Paul's at night you know and the elders of the community were so greatly respected and you know it doesn't matter if they knew your name or not but they would talk to you and include you and yeah there's you don't get that in every kind of community but you know and it's getting less and less and like that, that's that stuff Miranda that's that's getting shaved away yeah like every day and it's the, la the last little pockets of community are still in those places like Barcliffe and Simples. And like the last little community pubs are in those kind of places. And it's like gradually it's all getting stripped away. So that's why but when we do get a chance to, to paint it in a positive light or do cool things or involve the community in the kind of things you do, it's a good thing to kind of keep shining a light on that good stuff. Because yeah. otherwise it'll be gone and we'll all just be living in little Cliftons or we'll all be living in little Bedminsters. Like, do you know what I mean? Like we need to... I don't know, we need to champion that community part, a bit more. Isn't it? I mean, the East London that I knew is totally gone. It doesn't exist anymore. You know, you go into Shoreditch now, you go down, you know, Commercial Street where my nan lived, where my parents come from, where, you know, what I remember as a kid going down the market on a Saturday and a Sunday, mm. it doesn't exist anymore, albeit it does. But the people that I would class as, I don't know, part of my community, people that I understand, they don't live there anymore because they can't afford to live there anymore because it's not part of their world anymore. They've moved out and they've moved to places like Dagenham, like Ilford, like Barking and beyond now. Um, and, and East London has become something that I don't really recognize. Yeah, well, um, that's happened with St Paul's. And it <laughs> has become gentrified. I mean, we knew it would. I remember talking about it 30 world. years ago, you know, because it's so close to the city centre, it was inevitable that the city centre would yeah. spread and take yeah. over that area. And, you know, it's unrecognisable now. I mean, we are, people are trying to hang on to certain areas, community centres, pubs, but, you know, there's maybe one or two left now. Yeah. So it's even the shops, isn't it? When you, when you used to go to the shops and you was a yeah. kid and buy, buy your stuff and know the next shopkeeper's name. Yeah. Like, that's just all gone because Singsbury's is next door or Tesco's next door. And it's just like, 
I don't know. Oh, especially with all this COVID stuff, like all the little independents are knackered, didn't they? Do you know what I mean? What chance they got? More from Paul Holbrook and Laura Bainston after this. When Christmas is all around me, you listen things you've never heard. Oh, yes, you do. When the sounds is all around me, Miranda's with the word. Oh, yes, she is. Watcher, welcome back to Christmas Day here on The Word. Still to come, we are in conversation with the founder and musical director of three times Grammy Award winners, The Sounds of Blackness. But now it's time for part two of our wee chit-chat with filmmaker, director Paul Holbrook and writer-actress Laura Bainston. So what are you guys up to at the moment? I think you're working on a project called Hollow. We are. Oh, tell us a little bit about it. So it's another short film with Laura in the lead. It's Ooh. a film that I made as part of a thing called the Pitch Film Fund, which is like a yearly film fund where they award a production budget of 35k, £35,000 to go and um, basically make a short film based on the pitch that you presented that had to be inspired by a line in the Bible. Our films are a revenge thriller and it's about a, a single mother that's consumed by grief having lost her daughter to a, to a drink drive accident. And the guy that did it gets let out of prison early and moves back onto her housing estate. And she's consumed with these thoughts of um, revenge and hate and anger. And she confides in a local vicar who's trying to kind of guide her back on the straight and narrow. But he too is a man on the edge because he's being racially abused by, by the locals. And together, the pair of them head down this uh, dark road towards revenge, yeah. Laura, how, how are you finding the part? At what, at what stage have you got to in the film? Yeah, tell us a little bit about it. It's all finished now. We're, we're done. Okay. Um, it's in post at the moment. So Paul is busy finalising all the finer details and getting it ready. It's all the hard work that for, for me has been done. But yeah, that film was a good, I, I don't know, a year in the making, really, for me, of getting my, I couldn't really focus on, obviously I had to focus on other jobs because I did have other jobs, but it was just a real big point of focus for trying to get to the right point. It's almost like a, a morbid style of meditation you have to get to. You have to go off and find a little a little space and you have to stick your headphones in, listen to some music and get really miserable but you can't just do that straight away that's a lot of months of planning that's a lot of months of understanding how to get to that place and what works for you as an actor and what doesn't work and And how um, does that affect you when you're not at work do you find the character seeps into your day-to-day personality I mean I say that I'll watch I'll binge watch Downton Abbey and the next thing you know I'm dreaming in you know oh yes there's someone get you know I'm, I'm dreaming in the way they speak you know how and that must really affect you Well, do you know what? I'm not a method actor like, I don't know, Daniel Day-Lewis that would wear his wig home and, you know, completely stay in character. I mean, who does that? That's such hard work. Because I'm a mum as well. I've got two kids at home. I've got a life. I've got other things. I've got other castings. I've got other work. I do have to carry on. But it was really important for me with Hollow that I was removed from the home environment, that I was in a place where I didn't have to revert back to. I could, I could completely stay. Not, not, you know, method style, but I kind of feel like with me, I have to be somewhere in the middle of, I have to find that human attachment to the character. It has to come from somewhere. You know, I can remember when I was at um, drama school, quite a prominent drama school in Bristol, and I was told that the only way I would succeed because of my accent was to neutralise myself. And I remember thinking, how the hell do you neutralize what do you you know and even then I thought this no you can't do that that's not how it works that's not how I work and I wasn't prepared to be one of those character actresses that takes on any you know shape or form and becomes this 
hollow sorry um excuse the pun hollow kind of voice it, it has to there has to be there is no void there has to be this energy that you've got to it's authenticity in. i was yeah. speaking to paul about this Truthful. last time because I, yeah i'd always wanted to be an actress that was my absolute dream but i'm blind in one eye and going back 30 years ago it looked different and i was immediately told by drama colleges coaches just forget it. There's no point, you know, let alone the accent. We didn't even get to yeah. that bit. Do you know what I mean? But Paul, you really said how important it was to be authentic. We'll have to get you in something, Randa, if you fancy uh, having a go one day. <laughs> Would I? Try and Show stop me, what, me what you got. Oh Show my what you got. God. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. it, love it, is it. A, you know what? The authenticity thing, it is about authenticity, of course. And that comes down to everything. It's not just like the setting. You can you can you can go and shoot a film in Arkham and go, look how authentic it is, because we're pointing a camera at this, that, and the other. But it's authenticity of emotion and attachment as well. And that's what Laura's getting at. So, like, even me as a writer, I'm not I'm not a single mum. I'm not a woman that's that can understand. I'm not I can't understand how a mother would feel if I can understand from a parent's point of view, but you know, I'm not a woman, I'm not a mother. So it, it helps me in development of a project like Hollow that me and Laura are talking about that project for like a year. You know what I mean? She's coming into the office. She, she was part of the, um, we filmed like a little pitch for it. She was part of that. Her ideas and the conversations me and Laura have, those ideas seep into the writing mm. and that reinforces and props up the authenticity because Laura will say I typecast her and maybe I do to a degree, but that's just because she's so very good at what she does. But Laura's got a knack of attaching herself to an emotion, right? So she can get herself there and she can, and we can talk about that and we can talk about what that feels like and the implications of that and the repercussions of this and that stuff will seep into my writing. So it's authenticity of character more so than just authenticity of place. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I get from Laura. Endless conversations and, and it all helps. I'm sure most of our listeners would agree that we had no idea quite how much was involved in the process between the two of you as actor, film writer, director. You know, you'd think you'd be sent a script, you come on. Yeah, but, but I mean, we wouldn't, not everybody would have that luxury. Like I have right. that luxury, I have that luxury, number one, because she's a friend, and number two, because she's so committed, she wants it to be as good as it can be. Therefore, she'll give me, she'll give me that time, give me that space, give me that, give me her ear, do you know what I mean? And like, the question that you were just asking her, does she take it home? To a degree, you know, Laura, you must do a little bit because... Oh, yeah, I'm not very good at explaining all these things. It's really... I find no, it you really are. really hard to explain. But yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I do because it's always there. It's always in the either in the front of my mind or it's in the back of my mind. But it's, it, it never, ever gets put... It never gets completely put away, ever. Do you ever ask yourself, like... So we, we have our long conversations, right? <laughs> about where this character's at, why, why they're there, you know, what's going on. In, so we talk a lot, don't we, about what's going on internally in these, in these characters. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself at home just asking the question of what if, like any situation that comes up, what if you were this, what if you were the character in Hollow? What, what if in this situation you were the character in Hollow and how that would change and differ? Because that's how you attach yourself to it, is it? Because Yeah, I think you have to be asking questions all the time. I, can't, I don't think you can ever stop asking questions. That's why I ask you so many questions and you probably get really annoyed with me. No, I definitely um, don't. I love questions. I need to know the answers to these things or I need to at least have something that tangible that I can think on and think about. And, and that's the other thing for me as well. As an actor, I find uh, tangible is a good word. I like things. I like, you know, that's why I had to have my hair cut and coloured and I had to lose weight and I had to do all these things to really feel totally detached from the normal Laura and get more 
inside of the other character you know the character so in a way you are taking it home with you did you say that okay. when you were oh, filming yeah. you didn't go yeah. home did you say you were staying somewhere else yeah yeah so yeah we obviously we get we, we get put up um you know in the in the good old uh premier inn <laughs> um i i love a premier and... other hotels are available <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it, it was yeah i just it was good i needed that i needed that space i needed that almost you know that feeling cut off from everything was yeah, well really as a mum to then be kept away from your kids is actually surely going to help yeah. in a way get into that headspace yeah. yeah i mean sort of physically getting into the role as well it it did take a toll a little bit um i did have to sit my kids down the table and my husband and say right guys this is what i've got to do this is why i'm going to do it any questions and of course there were questions and my kids are very they're at an age where they're quite you know influenced by things my daughters are 14 and 12 and they were like well does it mean this mum and does it mean that you know because i'm you know i'm trying to lose weight for a, you know and i wasn't overweight in the to, to begin with and i didn't want want them to think that you know mummy was doing that because she wasn't feeling good about herself it wasn't about that at all it was about connecting to the role in the way that I connect to it and that was the way that it worked for me it might work differently for somebody else but for me it might be they can simply stick a hat on but it wasn't like that for me it had to be more close to the bone and it had to be more tangible taking it the next step further obviously you mentioned your mum so that helps but then how do you get into the headspace of being a mum who's lost a child how did you prepare for that I did a lot of research there's been things in my life personally that have affected me I've had loss and grief I've lost babies in the past you know I'm sorry sorry no but you know what? It's all of those little things that come together that create a person, you know. And but it also, I guess, it also helped that I'd had a sense of grief myself as a as a, as a person, as a mum, and I could oh, tap yeah. back into that as well. And the thing is, Laura would go off and do all this stuff, and that would raise questions, right? Mm. That Laura would then ask time. ask me, right? So she'd yeah. ask me those questions, and that would make me understand in the script. It's my job to ask questions in a film. Not that I don't like my films to necessarily give answers, but more just ask questions of its audience. So if Laura's asking me lots of questions, I can answer them to Laura as a filmmaker and as a writer, as a storyteller. But it made me realise the kind of questions I needed to be asking of the audience. So it would end up that we'd make we'd, we'd create scenes where, I don't, you know, for example, the one that you were just talking about there, Laura, but we, we would insert scenes where through conversation or subtext, we would be asking the audience a question. And it's that question of what would you do in this situation? How would you deal with this situation? What is the right or wrong of this response? That's so, what's so it's great about a film when you leave and you think, what would you do? What would I? What, yeah. what would I have done exactly. in that situation? And that's. And I, at the end of, at the end of this film, I have it splits the audience in two, and, and and some go, you know, whatever the ending. I don't want to give the ending away, but you know, that was correct and warranted, or that wasn't correct and warranted, and it, it will open up a conversation about you know, the human attachment to, re to violence, to revenge, to justice, to religions, all this kind of stuff, rather than preach some sort of answer, you know, because life's not as simple as that. And, and all the research, research that Laura does that then turn into questions for her to ask me, it gives me the chance and the space to uh, create those questions in a, in a more visual, story, storyful way on the page. You know what I mean? So, it, so again, you know, maybe, maybe Laura should have a writing credit on it. I don't know, but do you know what I mean? She, it, it all, it all adds up to, to what the end package becomes. I mean, I also think that that's really important. That's part of my job as an actor is to put all of that research, 
research in it's um all of that has to be done before you step foot on set you need to, i need to be able to step foot on set knowing that i know exactly what's going on at any point you know no my lines no no my mark listen to the director respond and all of that should happen months before you even get there yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I was going to ask Paul if he expects this level of commitment from all his actors and whether is is Laura unusual in the way in the in her dedication, Paul, or or is this you know quite She's usual? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I can't really speak for actors. I suppose every actor has got a different yeah. different sure. process, and but, I'm but, sure okay. they all work very differently. Okay. Who you've worked with to date? I mean, I would say I maybe selfishly rely on Laura and her level of commitment to fuel my own level of commitment to whatever the themes are that I'm exploring. Um, yeah, I mean, she, she goes above and beyond. She's definitely the hardest working act actor I've worked with. Right. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> We've got a little clip that I'm gonna play. Paul, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in the clip? So in this clip, this is where Laura's character goes to church to ask the local vicar for some advice in regards to the way she's feeling now that this guy's been released from prison and the vicar's trying to kind of talk her around and then eventually she she tells him what she really thinks or what oh. she's thinking of doing. Okay, great, let's have a little listen. Do you want to tell me about it? It's an insatiable desire to see cruel people in pain. Hate can swallow you up if you let it. But with our faith in God... Your faith. Faith is simply to trust. I know how hard that is to cling to. I don't have all the answers, but we can find comfort in looking for them. No, you see, faith, faith is sitting back, carrying in fear, that's what faith is. Faith can soothe, and we can take comfort in doing good, even in the face No, of... no, 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 because I did. I did. And I still lost everything. Thanks, Paul, for joining us today and Laura. Tell us when we can actually watch Hollow. When will it be out and how we can watch it? So we're still in post-production at the moment. So we're still doing the sound design, the music, the, the grade and all that kind of stuff. I think we have to deliver to the producers end of January. There'll be like a cast and crew screening in January. And then it will do the usual festival thing. So you, you'll get chances to see it at well, hopefully, at multiple festivals around the world. And then a general release, you're probably looking at about a couple of years, unfortunately. But yeah, there'll be, there'll be lots lots of opportunities to watch it in festivals and maybe a few private screenings locally as well. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas. That was Paul Holbrook and Laura Bainston. Can't wait to see Hollow when it comes out next year.
watcher and welcome. You are in tune to the word and we are celebrating Christmas Day. But now you just heard the incredible track that reached the dizzy heights of top 10 in America. In January 2021, The Sound of Blackness will be celebrating 50 years as one of the world's leading gospel choirs, but not just a choir, although consists of some of the best musicians, performers and singers at the very heart of all they do is to battle and fight social injustice and racism. With hit singles like Optimistic from 30 years ago and This Year, Black Lives Matter, Royalty and Sick and Tired, all three with messages, but delivered with such joy and wonder, they've become globally recognised, not just by their fans, but by their peers and industry leaders. Having worked with the likes of Stevie Wonder, Duke Ellington and Prince, just to name a few, we are delighted to share Christmas Day with the founder and musical director of Sounds of Blackness, Gary Dennis Hines. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, Miranda Ray! <laughs> How's your day been? Just uh, very awesomely blessed. We're so thankful for you and your support. And uh, family uh, here is great. And the Sounds of Blackness family all send Merry Christmas and love to uh, our number one home away from home, UK. It seems like yesterday when we spoke last, but so much has happened. It was back yeah. at the shortly after the tragic and brutal murder of George Floyd. And of course, yeah. you're from the same city. Things were very, very tense there. What's been going on in Minneapolis since we last spoke? Well, uh, Queen Miranda Ray, the the (laughs) outrage and indignation and anger and call to action following the, as you say correctly, the brutal murder of Brother George Floyd uh, has not subsided. The street protests uh, have not happened in the way that they were uh, those first several weeks and, and a couple of months. But the action in the aftermath has not subsided at all. So you need to know that. And, and you know, it was it's so close to home for Sounds of Blackness. Literally, Brother Floyd was, was murdered five blocks, Miranda Ray, five blocks from where Sounds of Blackness rehearsed in the heart of the uh, South Minneapolis Black community neighborhood. And uh, he uh, worked out at the same gym that I worked out at. He's done a security work for us. So in, in so many ways, it was close to home. But... We are still mobilized here in Minneapolis uh, for action, for for the ongoing struggle that, as you know, is is international for justice and equality. It really is. It's gone global. And since we last spoke, we've had huge protests around the world. And even right here in Bristol, we had the toppling of the slave trader statue, Edward Colston, that came down on the 7th of June, which had a ripple effect around the world. Did you hear about that? I surely did. And congratulations to Bristol and the UK. It was the right thing to do. And as Martin Luther King said, it's always the right time to do the right thing. And uh, that was the right thing. And, And the toppling of it is significant in and of itself because racism and injustice and equality need to be toppled. You you can't coddle it. You can't sugarcoat it any longer. That's been part of the problem. So thank you, Bristol and and UK for toppling that, that symbol. It was, you're absolutely right. The stars aligned and the time was right. Had it have happened before, yeah. a lot of people have criticised our mayor, who's the first black elected mayor, that he should have done it sooner. You know, one of the first things he should have done. But mm-hmm. then we wouldn't have had this incredible point in time that was needed right. and, and had an effect globally. So at the time, you had, when we last spoke, you just released that awesome single, Sick and Tired, which I've played over and over and over and over and over and over, <laughs> along, along with royalty and Black Lives Matter and so many amazing songs. Thank you. Thank you so much. You were raising funds for the George Floyd Foundation. Was that right? Yeah. yeah. How's that been going? 
Yes, and we still are through both uh, our merchandise. Many uh, people, uh, Miranda, have seen our Sick and Tired video on YouTube, and they saw the T-shirts. The we were wearing the Sick and Tired T-shirts, and so they've gone to our website, soundsofblackness.org, and purchased a copy of both the, the record and of the uh, T-shirt because they have seen that we are donating a portion of those proceeds to the George Floyd Scholarship Foundation. And that's your question infers a time frame. And, and I just want all the listeners and viewers to know that this will be ongoing. So we did not put a time limit on it. It's still happening now and will continue into 2021. That's great because I've been plugging it every time I play the single or any of your tracks. I mention it and I'm like, I, I think they're still doing it, but it's really great to have you confirm yeah. that you are... Thanks. Thank you. God bless you. On behalf of the the, the, the George Floyd family, I, I'm sure, and his, his beautiful seven-year-old daughter, uh, I'm sure you've seen the news footage of her saying, my daddy changed the world. You know, she's just an angel. So just on behalf of them, thank you. Let's talk yeah. about Sounds of Blackness and the family. You know, we're speaking of family. And let's just remind our listeners just how long have Sounds of Blackness been going? Well, in a matter of a few days, uh, Queen Miranda Ray, Sounds of Blackness in January, next month and a few days away, we'll be celebrating our 50th anniversary. Oh, yes. Wow. 50th. We began in January of 1971 at my alma mater, McAllister College, uh, here in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, in January of 1971. And uh, so most of the world has come to know us since our, our major releases with Jimmy Jam and, Le and Terry Lewis, shout out to them. And of course, that was in the spring of 1991. So when we tell people, no, we actually existed 20 years before that, a lot of people didn't know that. So January marks our 50th anniversary. That's absolutely phenomenal. Congratulations. That's incredible. Thanks. How many people make up Sound of Blackness at the moment? And then how many people must have come and gone over the years? Great questions as always, Miranda Ray. Our current uh, membership is 25 grand total. We have 15 singers and uh, a 10-piece band or orchestra, really. And a uh, shout out to our band, too. A lot of times they don't get the attention that they deserve. We want all your, your listeners and followers and viewers to know that uh, those instrumentalists that you hear on Sounds of Blankets Records and when we are blessed to come to the UK or wherever we are performing, that's not a hired help or a band. Those are actual Sounds of Blackness members. In fact, many of them long time, 20, 25 year members of Sounds of Blackness as well. So our current total is, is 25. And part question asked uh, how many members over the years, literally that would go into the hundreds. I would say easily 300 or more uh, have been members of Sounds of Blackness, including one of the UK's favorite artists, my dear brother, Alexander O'Neill. A lot of people don't know that he uh, was originally a, a member of Sounds of Blackness. And uh, as well, Cynthia Johnson, whose name they might not recognize immediately, but if I say the word Funky Town, everybody knows that record. So they both began in Sounds of Blackness. Absolutely incredible. I mean, what a legacy. Can you remember what inspired the Sounds of Blackness in the first place? Yes, yes, and I'm so glad you asked. So uh, this will just take a, a moment to, to give some perspective. I mentioned McAllister College a moment ago. McAllister College embarked on a very uh, ambitious program in 1969 to recruit students of color onto the campus, and they were very successful with it. It was called EEO, Expanded Educational Opportunities. And one of the offshoots, uh, Miranda, of that effort was that the students themselves initiated and organized a number of different groups and activities. There was a theater group called Black Arts Midwest, 
there was a political group called BLAC, the Black Liberation Affairs Committee, and there was this 50-voice choir called the McAllister College Black Voices under the direction of uh, Mr. Russell Knight, my dear friend and brother, one of our emeritus members, a native of Beaumont, Texas. Well, fast forward to January of 71 from 1969 when McAllister Black Voices started. In January of 71, Miranda Ray, Russell uh, asked me on as director, and I was very honored. They were very excellent back then. And the last part of your question asked about how we evolved into the sounds of blackness or in and so forth. And when I came on in January 71, the, the vision that the good Lord gave me, and I remember very clearly, was to continue the tradition of Duke Ellington. Now, that surprises a lot of people when I say that, because we hear Duke Ellington's name and we think of jazz, and of course we should. But what too many people don't know is that Duke did the music of the culture. Duke Ellington wrote and recorded spirituals blues, gospel, anthems, hymns, work songs. Duke did the music of the culture, every sound of Blackness. So we needed a name that would fit and be representative of that repertoire. So that's the origin and meaning of the name Sounds of Blackness. Wow, it's incredible. I'd never really, I mean, before today, I didn't realize that you were nearly 50 years old. So to actually get a bit of the history behind it, it's incredible, yeah. absolutely incredible. Did you ever imagine that you'd still be here doing this with the Sounds of Blackness 50 years later? You know, and I say uh, as humbly as I can, actually the answer is yes, and I'll I explain that. I know you know the great artist Stokely, formerly of, of uh, Mint Condition. He's a solo artist uh, now and a very successful one. Yeah. His father, uh, Professor Mahmoud El-Khati, is another one of Sounds of Blackness and my own mentors. He was a professor at McAllister College when Sounds of Blackness, well, the McAllister Black Voices started there, as I mentioned earlier. And the relevance to that is that he encouraged us way back then, Queen Miranda, to be more than just a band, but to be a cultural institution because we were pre basically preserving black music, jazz, rock, R&B, soul, spirituals, hip hop, reggae, ragtime, gospel. And, and he said that that's an institutional thing. So we listened to him and we actually incorporated. So Sounds of Blackness actually is incorporated under state and federal organization here in the U.S. to be an institution that would be ongoing and formally organized and as well as being a band and an arts function. And now the final part of my answer for you is by the grace of God and by the dedication of our singers and musicians, we're continuing that legacy. And the interesting thing, Miranda, is that a number of our current members are actually the children of some original members. Like you mentioned royalty and sick and tired and the, the featured vocalist on both of those is Anne Nesby's daughter, Jamesia Bennett. And they sound so much alike. A lot of people say, is that Anne? I say, no, that's her daughter. So it's really sounds of Blackness second generation. And, and that's how we, we aim to, to be an ongoing institution uh, and more than just a band. You mentioned there something that uh, I just wanted to pick up on then. And you mentioned about continuing and promoting Black music. And you mentioned rock music. Now, so many times, obviously, Ujimo is African and Caribbean-based radio station promoting Black culture, music. And a lot of times people will say, well, you can't play rock music. That's not Black music. But it is, isn't it? It most certainly is. You know, uh, and the first people to tell you that would be the Beatles, would be, I mean, you can name whoever. In fact, it, it, it's so interesting. I bet you've seen this inter interview that I'm about to allude to, but that famous British invasion, uh, 
first foray uh, by the Beatles when they landed at the airport and they were, I know you've seen the old black and white footage on television uh, many times, and they're surrounded by U.S. press and media. And uh, one of the questions they repeatedly asked, who is your influence? Uh, who do you, do you look up to? And they started, of course, talking about Bo Diddley and, and, and even going back to Blind Lemon. They named all these black artists that ironically most of the white press there had never heard of, unfortunately. So that that's part of of the extension of uh, uh, the unfortunate history of uh, a racism here in the U.S. as it applies to the music industry, where many times Black artists who were the creators of the music were relegated to uh, really just obscurity and their music given to, to white artists. Uh, and so the Beatles knew that and so many other British acts, one of their primary goals in life was to sound as Black as they could. And they would say so unashamedly, not in any appropriative way. So yes, rock and roll, what we know, call rock and roll founders <laughs> are definitely out of the Black experience. So we're talking about Chuck Berry and we're talking about Fats Domino and we're talking about Little Richard. And, and again, the artist that I just mentioned would be the first to tell you that. And we've touched now since we started speaking today on Christmas Day a number of times about racism. Now, in your journey over 50 years in the music industry, what kind of changes have you seen an attitude towards the black community? Great questions. You know, that, that brings to mind, uh, to start my answer, uh, Miranda, a quote of a gentleman, Alain Locke, who is known as the father of the Harlem Renaissance. He once said that it boggles the mind of human understanding how a people, referring to black people, could be so socially despised yet culturally esteemed. So loving the music, but hating the people and the culture, you know, historically. So fortunately from the time frame he was talking about, that has changed for the most part. Unfortunately, not entirely, it's still an ongoing battle, but just the division and the lack of authority within the music industry, power and influence, both artistically and on the business end by black artists that historically has been the case, of course, has now been greatly overturned, not primarily or not entirely, but primarily, I meant to say. Even going back to artists like Sam Cooke with his own record label, and people still think to this day that him establishing that had something to do with him losing his life as opposed to what was propagated in the media. But it's been an ongoing struggle. Even fast forward to my dear friend and brother of the late great Prince and his struggle for independence and, and insisting that artists do things independently. So a lot of that historically has been tied to, to race and skin color and even to the type of music, black, when black music was referred to here in the US as race records, knowing that that meant black artists. So fortunately now we have more influence and power in the industry and can call more shots and can continue to march toward a just and equal playing field. And you know what, the album Evolution of Gospel that came out in 92, and that was just at the start of my career when I was starting to DJ. And I just remember that track Optimistic resonating with me and I haven't stopped playing it for 30 years. It's still one of my go-to tracks oh. that I just love. It makes me feel good. Everybody loves listening yeah. to it and it just never ages. Like all of your songs, they all sound fantastic. And I have to say this, uh, since you said that, uh, Queen Miranda, Optimistic was the very final track that we, Sounds of Black, just recorded at Flight Time Studios here in Minneapolis for the Evolution of Gospel album. And I'll never forget because I was a staff producer for Jam and Lewis at the time. And we were done basically with the record. And I'll never forget, it was around midnight or so, kind of like the jazz title. 
And uh, they called me into their office, Jan and Lewis, and they said, doctor, that's their nickname for me, said, you know, we, we, we think you got a great record here, but we feel like we need one more that will be a classic and stand the test of time. And, and the word optimistic keeps coming to mind. And we, we started writing that night and, and work and working the track and all that kind of thing and brought the group in the next night or two later. And it was a magical recording experience, uh, Queen Miranda. So uh, when you talked about it 30 years later, Jam and Lewis literally said, I remember the words of verbatim that we want to do something that will be a classic that everybody can, that's universal, that all people can relate to and that will stand the test of time. And that was part of the goal uh, with writing and recording Optimistic. And it surely did. It's just phenomenal. One day I hope to see you guys perform it live. On that note, obviously this year, the events industry, the music industry, nightclubs, you know, you name it, festivals, they've been decimated. This pandemic, I never envisioned anything like this ever happening in anybody's yeah. lifetimes. So this must have really affected you. Would you normally have been gigging a lot throughout the year? The answer in, in reverse order of, of you mentioning those, Miranda, well, first of all, an unequivocal yes, very radically so. <laughs> in fact, one irony is we had just booked our, our return to the UK, which we had the last time we were, were in the UK was for, I'm going to think of the name of the festival, but uh, almost two years ago that we used to go to many times. And I'll, I'll, I'll recap that. But we had just, there was another big summer festival that was coming up. I think it was called the London Music Festival. I'm not, if I'm not sure. Just secured that, you know, a matter of weeks before the lockdown. And so that was a huge disappointment, but it embodied, to answer your question, uh, Miranda, it, it embodied the, the traumatic and turbulent upheaval, uh, especially as it relates to the music industry with activity, travel, performances coming to a stop for months and months. And, and uh, of late, of course, uh, in recent months and weeks, we've been focusing, as many artists have been, on virtual performances, basically pre-records or by Zoom, as, as we're speaking, you and I right now, but many pre-records so that we would go into a studio that was large enough to be safely distanced. And it would have to be large because there's so many of us and be able to do a pre-recorded performance for different activities that we would then uh, send to the different clients and promoters and so forth. But we're hoping and praying that things open up for 2021, although from projections, it may not be till 2022, where we can travel again and come back to our home away from home, the UK. Well, this is it, isn't it? As you say, it's no mean feat getting you guys on a stage. It's got to be a big stage to fit you all <laughs> on. And uh, uh, whatever you do, if you ever get to the UK, you've got to promise to let me know. I will be there with the crew. It's been one hell of a year. So you mentioned yes. some of the people that you've worked with over the years. Is there one standout person that you've worked with that you just thought, wow, I will never forget that? Oh my goodness, that could be said. I always try to answer exactly what I'm asked. So I'll do, I'll do my best with that one. That's a tough, <laughs> but we, I like tough questions. I mean, that certainly could be said of, of, of uh, Quincy Jones. It could be said of uh, just you know, of Prince. I, I would probably uh, gravitate towards Stevie Wonder. Oh, do you know uh, what? I was thinking you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Been blessed to travel, to record and travel with him on worldwide stages in Brazil. And that was, I think, late 90s. So we were in Sao Paulo and Rio and then halfway around the world in the other direction to Monte Carlo for the World Music Awards. And oh, yeah, we, we uh, he came to Minneapolis. And speaking of Prince, I'll never forget, flight time was booked. I think Michael Jackson 
rest his soul, either Michael or Janet, had all the Flight Time Studios booked. But Stevie wanted Sounds of Blackness to do the group vocals for his final song on his at the time, conversation piece and the piece P-E-A-C-E. And so he came, so Paisley was available and, and Prince made it available, I should say. Mm-hmm. And we recorded vocals, conversation piece uh, with Stevie live there at, at Paisley. So many projects and, and uh, he, when we would come to LA uh, for a function, many times he would wind up in the audience just supporting and just, just yeah. a dear friend and brother, just a force of nature, Stevie Wonder. That has just blown me away. Absolutely incredible. So that's someone that we can all relate to, an inspirational person that you've worked with. What about that one place where you just think, oh my God, that was just the most special place to perform? Well, I'll approach the answer the same way, Miranda Ray. (laughs) There have been very special places. I mean, we have our number two international market is Japan. And uh, after the UK, which is, again, as I say, number one, certainly uh, many great experiences there, certainly many great experiences in London and throughout the UK and all the different festivals, Notting Hill and, and, and just, I mean, just on and on. But I'd, I'd have to say, again, another tough answer, but I think at the top of the list would have to be, uh, speaking of Stevie Wonder, when we sojourned with him to Ghana, and that was, I believe, 1996, to uh, Cape Coast and Accra for the, the festival known as Panafest, and that's the Pan-African Musical Festival. And after years of singing about Africa, Miranda, for Sounds of Blackness, finally to go there, and I'll never forget when we were stepping off of the plane onto the, to the tarmac, and they had a red carpet out for us, and before they let our feet hit the ground, there was a greeting party there, and they all said together, welcome home. And of course, tears were flowing and just, I mean, yeah, we hadn't even got off the plane yet and we're crying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm but, almost and, crying uh, with you. I can yes, feel it. Yes. What a special event. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, literally, literally life-changing event, uh, our sojourn to Ghana. That's kind of blown me away a little bit. I think I might need a second just to kind of really sink that in. What well, am I just, you must yeah. have all been so emotional. Incredible. Oh Incredible. my goodness. Yes, and that was just the start of the emotion. I mean, <laughs> to be there, and, and then there was this primordial type of familiarity, even centuries removed from the guy, that the group kept talking about. It's like, what is this? This this feels so familiar. It feels so right, and just just everything about just uh, the atmosphere, the temperature, the, the 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 smells of the food in the air, the drums and the marketplace. It was it was just a, almost an otherworldly type experience. And then in between performances. We uh, went to the Elmina Slave Castle dungeons, uh, and and my God, you talk about emotional. To go in those rooms that were the size, maybe probably of your studio office, where they would fit a thousand bodies and separate the men and the women, and in, in the next room, uh, they could hear families crying and wailing, and then all of a sudden silence as they onto the ships, and they they showed us during the tour this this small opening they called it the door of no return which i guess led from the castles into the hull of the ship and once you once you went through the door of no return you know you were never seen again and so when we came back ghanaians and and many west africans refer to african americans in that historical context as the lost children the children that were lost to the sea um, and so we returned home and, and, and I have to tell you this story, if I can just take a quick second. The, the great Nigerian master drummer, Baba Tunde Olatunje, who worked with Santana and so many artists and that kind of thing. And we had history with him that I can talk about in another time, a great history. But we, as we were going back to our bus, tour bus from leaving the, the, the uh, slave dungeons, we literally bumped into him on the beach. 
he remembered me from literally 20, 30 years ago when he had come to Minneapolis to my junior high school. And he had us make a circle of Miranda and, and did a, a prayer of, of reconciliation and, and restoration for the lost children. And so all these just emotionally uh, gut-wrenching, in a good way though, experiences that we had. So, so long answer to your question, but for those types of reasons, uh, and of course that kind of thing can only happen in Africa and Ghana. So for those reasons, I would have to put that at the top of the list of the extraordinary travel circumstance locations. What incredible stories. This is The Word on Christmas Day with Gary Dennis Hines of The Sounds of Blackness. Hope you're having a wicked Christmas Day. Time now for our final conversation with the founder of multi-award winning Sounds of Blackness and their incredible musical director, Gary Dennis Hines, who tells us all about their incredible virtual Christmas concert the night before Christmas. Just had to invite you back because of when we spoke last <laughs> time. It was yeah. just such a, a privilege to hear you talk and, and tell your story. Stories and, and you know what you've been through whether it's something that's happened recently or in the past you are a great storyteller and it's just <laughs> such an honor to have you here with us on Christmas Day it really is yeah. I want to hear hey. more about Bubba Tunda what were you going to say because we're, we're in no rush I do oh, want okay. to speak to you about the night before Christmas but we'll get on to that but first okay. tell me about Bubba Tunda Yes, great. A master. When they, if, if the term master drummer has ever been more appropriately applied, I don't know what it is, but master drummer, uh, Baba Tunde Olatunje. I'll never forget Queen Miranda. I was a, a student at Bryan Junior High School, which again is the same place where, where Sounds of Blackness uh, rehearsed. It's now a community center called the Sabathney Community Center, five blocks from where Brother Floyd was killed. But it was a junior high school where, that I attended when uh, my family moved to Minneapolis from Yonkers, New York. And I say that to say this, one day uh, we had a special auditorium and it was going to be a surprise and they didn't, uh, the school, the teachers didn't tell us what it was, but lo and behold, Baba Tunde was, was touring the U.S. with his drummers and dancers and just blew our minds. And to the point where word got out that he was also going to do uh, a repeat performance four blocks away at, at the high school, uh, Minneapolis Central, where and the junior high school, Bryant, that's also where Prince attended. And then Minneapolis Central, Prince attended as well, not at the same time. I mean, that was, uh, uh, you know, I was years ahead of him there, but that's where he, he attended junior high school and high school. So Baba Tundi was going to Minneapolis Central and we went to uh, the black and some white students uh, at Bryant said, we need to see this man again. Can we go down? Can we have permission to be excused and, and go down to, to Central four blocks away and see him perform again? And they said no. But of course, we went anyway. <laughs> and and not, not meaning to be you know disrespectful or whatever, but it was so life changing yeah. to hear that music and to hear what he had to say and to, to hear our history and, and, and the connection to Africa and how he connected it to the blues and, and rock and gospel and the rhythm, the polyrhythms of West Africa. It's like, oh my God. And obviously we, we weren't getting that ed education at Bryan Junior High School. And the importance so, of drumming in African culture yes. as well. So powerful. Yes, it is. And the drum is, as you clearly know, in our history was something that the slave masters feared early on. Laws were enacted where it was punishable by death to even be caught attempting to make a drum because the slave master knew that the drum was communication uh, that he did not understand. And so the body became the drum. That's where ham boning came in, you know, where the body became the drum. So you could take the African out of Africa, but you could not take the Africa out of the African. Wow. 
Oh, so you guys have still been busy and and you've been celebrating Christmas over there with an incredible virtual <laughs> Christmas concert. I've seen a clip of it and oh my days, it's like a full on Broadway West End as we have here in the UK production. Tell our mm. listeners a little bit about The Night Before Christmas. The Night Before Christmas, A Musical Fantasy is uh, an original musical play that I was blessed to write in 1978. So this is the 42nd year of The Night Before Christmas. Mm. The Sounds of Blackness performed it uh, every year uh, annually here in the Twin Cities. And we've also blessed, have been blessed to tour with it occasionally uh, and perform it in cities such as Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, and uh, DC. And then uh, actually at the Apollo in New York. I know everybody knows the Apollo Theater. And every time I say Apollo, it makes me think of the Hammersmith Apollo, of course you very wise. <laughs> but so we, we've been blessed to travel and, and perform with it, but usually annually here in the Twin Cities. Well, fast forward to 2020, and as you, as you alluded to the realities of uh, COVID protocol and all that kind of thing and theaters being shut down. But there's such a clamor for the, and a need, especially now with people's emotional frustration and depression and all those things. And we were getting emails, tweets, you name it, messages just from all over people saying, oh, we missed the night before Christmas and we really needed this year more than ever. Is there anything you guys can do? So we talked to the Ordway Music Theater here uh, in the Twin Cities. Actually, they're, they're located in St. Paul across the river from Minneapolis. Uh, and the Ordway Music Center uh, and Theater for Performing Arts is the full title, is really the Kennedy Center of the Midwest. Just an, an amazing uh, venue, uh, Miranda Ray. We have worked with them before, since actually as early as 1988, with our Martin Luther King musical that we had done uh, annually there. But we had never done the Christmas show at the, the Ordway. So uh, long story short, they were very excited about the idea. And almost more importantly, they shared our enthusiasm about people needing this type of joy and, and, and something positive, uh, especially at this, at this time. And so what we opted to do was to do a, a concert version of music of, of many of the songs, not all of them, but many of the songs from the musical, not being able to, uh, again, because of COVID and protocol and distancing and all that, being able to do all of the choreography and interaction and characterization that a full, that goes on in a full play. But we thought, you know, if we can distance, uh, and of course we did, and, and be placed where we're safe and so forth, then we can do a concert version of it and maybe also include snippets of the play to give people who have never seen it an idea of what Santa Claus's fine reindeer look like. So it's based on the poem that the actual title is A Visit from St. Nicholas, but most people commonly refer to it as Twas the Night Before Christmas. It surprises a lot of people that the night before Christmas went all through the house and was written in 1822. That's a long time ago by a Methodist minister, Clement C. Moore. And he wrote it originally for his children. And then it got read at, at uh, musicals and, and community events. And the rest is history, as they say. You know, it, it proliferated, you know, around the world and, and gave us much of our imagery that we associate now, you know, with the holiday, with Santa Claus. Uh, everything from his appearance to the sleigh and, and the, the reindeer and their names, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen. So fast forward to Sounds of Blackness, 1978. And, you know, the vision the good Lord gave me was because it was, a, it was a, a poem that I always have loved ever since a child back in Yonkers, New York. The good Lord gave me this vision of what if this poem were to happen to a black family, you know, a contemporary urban telling of this, uh, what would happen with that? And so that notion uh, was what birthed the writing of The Night Before Christmas, A Musical Fantasy. 
and it is incredible and the costumes are incredible and the music's amazing and, and I'm just so excited about it I don't know where to start but you know you've got rapping Rudolph and Soulful yeah. Santa Claus and the reindeer go on strike and just tell <laughs> our listeners just give them a little snippet about some of these characters that we can see sure now our goal with Night Before Christmas it always is is to be as true to uh, Clement Moore's poem as possible, even as we take liberties with it to still be true to the original. So, but we do take some liberties. So for example, uh, in terms of the characters that come to life and sing about what it's like to be that character in the original, Clement Moore, for example, says, the children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. Well, in our black version, we say the children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of chitlins danced in their heads. So we, our chitlins come to life and dance and, and sing and, and talk about what it's like to be a chitlin on Christmas Eve. Uh, and it's absolutely hilarious. We also have, we take liberties with the reindeer. Yeah. Uh, we still have the, all eight of them. In Clement Moore's poem, he says, calls them eight tiny reindeer. Well, we call them the eight super fine reindeer, just representing the beauty of black women, the beauty of all women and, and, and their struggle for equal representation, equal pay. They feel like they're overlooked and overworked uh, and overshadowed by Santa Claus. And so they go out on strike on Christmas Eve. So there's, you know, always political ramifications and all that. But, but of course, we, we come to a happy resolution at the end. I love it. And then, of course, you've got Rapping Rudolph as well. Rapping Rudolph, that's right. And there's conflict between Rudolph and the, the, the female reindeer in terms of who's going to be the lead reindeer and all of that. This, so all of that, we, we couldn't include all of those character interactions and, and representations in, in the concert version, but we allude to most of them. So uh, opening up our fantasy sequence, of course, everybody knows the line, the stockings were hung by the chimney with care and hope that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Well, at that point, when that's said, we have five Christmas stockings that come to life, you know, in human form and giant Christmas stockings. And they sing about what it's, uh, what it's like to be a stocking on Christmas Eve because Santa Claus is late. They're hungry. They're waiting. So, of course, stocking stuffers are their food. And they sing this hilarious song to Santa Claus, hoping that he'll hurry up and get there and fill them up with goodies. It's fantastic. So it's Christmas Day. So people listening to this are going to be like, I want to watch this. I want to see this. Can they still watch it? Yes, they can for another week uh, today uh, on Christmas Day. All you need to do, it's being streamed on Broadway on demand around the world. And uh, the easy way, there's two easy ways to, to access that. Either go to Sounds of Blackness website, which is very easy to remember, soundsofblackness.org.org, or you can go to Ordway, O-R-D-W-A-Y, Ordway.org through the theater, or you can go directly to Broadway On Demand for Sounds of Blackness, The Night Before Christmas, the concert version. I will also share it on our Ujima Radio Facebook page so people can find it on there as well as on my Thank personal Facebook page. Gary, it's been such a privilege to have you on the show on Christmas Day. And do we have any plans for 2021? We do. Um, Sounds of Blackness, of course, as I mentioned much earlier uh, in January, uh, in just a, a matter of days, we'll be uh, recognizing, celebrating, commemorating our 50th anniversary. And so COVID has uh, realities prohibit us from setting a hard date. I mean, if, if COVID wasn't the case, we'd be able to say, Miranda Ray, that 
okay, say so on May 1st, we're going to have a, a big concert and, and gala celebration, you know, at whatever, look at the Ordway or wherever, but we don't know, uh, and, and most theaters are still closed. So what we have uh, committed to do, uh, Miranda Ray, is Sounds of Blackness, every event that we do uh, wind up performing, whether it's virtual, well, it will be virtual, we're going to add a commemorative component to it as we go along throughout the year. That's a great idea. I will be celebrating your 50th anniversary in style throughout the year. And Gary, thank you so much for sharing your Christmas day with me. God bless you and happy new year. God bless you and thank you, Miranda Ray. Massive thank you to Gary Dennis Hines from The Sounds of Blackness. Please take some time with the family to watch The Night Before Christmas. It really is the most wonderful virtual and magical experience. They've sorted it so that people can now watch from anywhere in the world. Just search The Sounds of Blackness The Night Before Christmas on Broadway on demand. Also visit the Sounds of Blackness website to purchase any of their music but if you want to help raise money for the George Floyd Foundation, if you buy their singles, Sick and Tired, or their t-shirts or masks, then you are helping to raise money for the George Floyd Foundation. So the night before Christmas, streaming live on demand from today right through till the 31st of December. It might even be extended to the 3rd of January. Tickets are only $15 so that's not more, much more than a tenner and that's per household so as many of you can watch as you like. So, it looks like we've run out of time. Wow, huge thank you to all our guests today. Dr. Maya Rose Craig, a.k.a. Bird Girl, filmmaker extraordinaire Paul Holbrook, plus actress and writer Laura Bainston. Keep your eyes open for their next film out next year called Hollow. And, of course, big thanks to Gary from The Sounds of Blackness. I'm out of here, but we'll be back on New Year's Day. Let's see in 2021 together as we look back at some of the highlights of the word over the last year. My name's Miranda. This has been The Word. I'm out of here. See ya. Merry Christmas, one and all.